If you would grab your Bibles and open to John chapter 16, John chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the back of the pew right in front of you. Uh, Especially today, I would love for you to follow along and be able to see that what I'm saying is not just cherry picking scriptures, but this is woven into the entirety of the biblical narrative. And so I would love for you to follow along. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, if you don't have a hard copy of your own, um, then I would encourage you to take that one home with you. We really want everybody to have a hard copy of the scriptures. And if you came in without one, uh, we would love for you to leave with one. So uh, feel free to take that one home with you. Uh, We're going to begin a series today, a Lenten series called Encountering God in Dark Places. Lent, if that's not a familiar term to you, is uh, the 40-day period between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday. Uh, That includes six Sundays. And so over the course of this Sunday, plus the next five, we'll be journeying through this uh, series and we'll culminate on uh, Easter Sunday morning as we gather and celebrate together. Um, the, the heart of where we're going is the reality of encountering God in the midst of suffering. And uh, that's, a, that's a difficult and weighty thing for us to jump into. We'll talk about that more in just a minute and why we're going to do that in just a minute. But I want you to keep in mind what we talked about last week. So if you were not with us last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast or uh, watch on YouTube. Uh, you, you really need Numbers chapter 6 as a foundation for where we're going. The heart of Numbers chapter six, if I'm just gonna give you a brief summary, was that the face of God is turned towards us and because his face is connecting with ours, he's building joy in us because joy comes from relationship with people who are happy to see you. And Jesus is happy to see you. He loves you. And as his face turns towards us, his eyes connect with us and there's this joy that comes from the face of God. That's vitally important Because joy and suffering are not mutually exclusive. In fact, the calling for the believer is to live in joy even while we unabashedly engage in the suffering of the world around us. Meaning we can, we can be emotionally devastated through uh, anger or fear or anxiety or pain and still be in joy, need to be turning back to joy. And so that's what we're going to be talking about all the way through. So last week was an intentional kind of setting up of where we're going. And today we're going to walk through the breadth of the scriptures and uh, what that means as it relates to suffering. But we're going to begin um, at the end of John chapter 16. So just very quickly John 16 is the end of three chapters that are full of Jesus teaching to his disciples at the very end of Jesus' life. So this is the last stuff that he's communicating to his disciples. Some of the most important things that he's teaching them are found in these last three chapters. And these are the very last things that he's going to say to them before he goes into the garden to pray, will ultimately be arrested, led away, and crucified. These are the last words that he's speaking over them. And so keep that in mind as Hannah comes. Uh, Hannah is going to read for us just these last three verses in John chapter 16. I want you to imagine like you're the disciples. Jesus is talking to you and you are hearing these words spoken over you as uh, you, uh, you listen to Jesus. Jesus answered speaking to the disciples. Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. 
Amen. Thank you, Hannah. Would you pray with me? Jesus, help us to hear both sides of that promise, that in this world we will have struggle and trial and tribulation, but that you also have overcome the world. And so, Jesus, would you come and meet us as we walk through the scripture today? Would you speak to us through your word? God, would you give us hearts to hear what you are saying by your spirit? May the words that come from my flesh fall to the ground and be forgotten, but may the words that come from your spirit remain. And God, would you shape us? We need to be shaped according to your word to live in your story. And so, God, would you teach us to do that? So, God, we give ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let me start by uh, asking what maybe to some of you is the obvious question. Why in the world are we talking about this? Um, You know, we're in the middle of a time where God's been doing some really profound things among us as a body. Uh, There's been some really intense joys and some good things. Uh, If you've watched what's happening in the world around you, there's been an outpouring of the Spirit of God at Asbury that has begun to move around uh, the world, particularly in college campuses. God's doing a unique thing. And and there's exciting things that God's placed out in front of us. Why wouldn't we talk about all of that stuff? Why do we have to talk about suffering? Why do we have to talk about darkness in the midst of all of this? Well, let me answer this question, that question this way. A couple years ago, as the pandemic began, there was uh, some research done, and one of the pieces of research that I found most fascinating was that early on in the pandemic, for every 800 COVID deaths, Google searches for prayer doubled. And that continued exponentially through the early months of the pandemic. For every 800 COVID deaths, Google searches for prayer doubled. What was happening? Well, people, largely people who didn't know about prayer, maybe didn't even know about God, were in the midst of uncertainty and fear and concern and not sure what's going on in the world around them, were reaching out for God. They're reaching out for something solid. They were um, in the midst of darkness looking for light. But at the same time, if you were part of the church at the time or if you were paying attention, you know that just as many people left, walked the other way, decided, you know what, this, is, this isn't worth it. So while there was this massive group of people seeking God, there was another massive group of people leaving the faith. And um, by the time everything shook out, most statistics would say more left than came. Why? Well, I think there's a lot of answers to that question, but um, the, the key one that I'd like to zero in on, not just this morning, but over the next six weeks, is that the church has a really good theology of blessing and a really lousy theology of suffering. We're good at talking about God on the mountaintop, but we struggle to walk with God through the valley. And the very same things, both at the macro level, global pandemic, or at the micro level, a a sudden illness or a job loss or extended depression, the same things will drive some people toward God and some people away from him. And that gets multiplied by the fact that when we live in a community where we believe that God pursuing Jesus equals blessing— and we're not experiencing that blessing. We feel the sense of, um, of like, I'm not doing it right. 
I'm, I'm broken somehow. I'm not doing it the way that I'm supposed to. I, I, I know that Jesus promised suffering because I just read it, but the church promised like, you know, green pastures and still waters. And I'm not sure I liked that promise better. So I'm sticking with that one. And, and then I'm not, I'm not bringing that suffering, the, the trials and the tribulations and the difficulties into community. So then what happens, we talked about last week, the idea that joy creates authenticity and authenticity creates joy. So what happens is instead of being honest with one another, I tend to back away because I feel like I'm doing it wrong. I'm, I messed something up because I'm suffering, I'm struggling, and I shouldn't be because everybody else is happy and good. And so then in the midst of my suffering, I tend to pull away instead of drawing close. So what I want us to do over the next six weeks is establish the fact that Jesus has gone before us and encountered God in darkness. This is not something that we do alone. This was originally designed to be a practice series, but I thought it was kind of masochistic to say, let's practice suffering together. Like, let's, let's, let's all together just jump into that. That'll be fun. So it's not a practice series in the traditional sense, but I do want to say to you really clearly, all that we're going to be going through, you're going to see it over the next six weeks, all that we're going to go through is the life of Jesus before us. He has walked this path, and he invites us to walk the same path as well. So today, what I want to do is uh, a, b- a bit aggressive, so stick with me. What I'd like to do is set a foundation, biblically, from literally Genesis 1 to Revelation 21, on uh, what suffering looks like, where it came from, and uh, how we need to engage it. So this is going to be quite a journey, which is why I hope you have your Bibles open. I'm going to be asking you to flip around a lot as we work our way through. I want to look at two things, uh, but don't be... Uh, don't be surprised there's two things and the second thing has nine subpoints. so just get ready to go okay just get, get ready take a deep breath it's going to be okay we'll be fine we'll be fine so the two things i want to look at are the least popular promise of jesus the one that you just heard in this world you will have suffering str- struggle trial what what he meant and then a journey through what i'm calling the birth and death of darkness As we encounter god in the darkness what does it look like for us to do that so the least popular promise of jesus and the birth and death of darkness. So let's turn back to John chapter 16 and this popular, uh, least popular promise of Jesus that he said, in this world you will struggle. Why is it that some people faced with suffering draw close and some people turn away? Well, Pete Hughes in his book, All Things New, made a statement that I think is really, really helpful for us. Uh, Pete said this, the story you live in is the story you live out. Now let that land on you for a second. This is gonna be really important for where we're going. The story you live in is the story that you live out. Meaning, the way that I look at the world, the story that I live in, is the story that I'm ultimately gonna be walking out as I pursue Jesus, as I live in the world, as I interact in the world. The, The framework in which I view the world is going to draw me towards Jesus or away from Jesus because of the story itself, the way that I see it. And so I'm gonna make the argument that there's two different worlds that we live in And that's why some people are drawn close to Jesus in suffering and some people turn away from him in suffering. And to oversimplify it, I think those two worlds come down to the way that we see John chapter 16, verse 33. So let me read for you one more time, just the back half of that verse. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So there's two anchor points I want us to look at. The first one is tribulation. That word tribulation is thalipsis in Greek. It's fun to say, thalipsis, say thalipsis. 
It, we don't have that THL thing together. It's really fun to say that. Thalipsis. It's really great. Anyway, that word thalipsis means a steadily building pressure. It's a fun word that's not so happy in its, uh, in its meaning. What Jesus is saying is, in this world, you will have tribulation, trial, struggle. Uh, you, you will suffer because there's a steadily building pressure against those who are followers of Jesus in the world around us. That's just the way it is. So Jesus, making a statement about fact, not saying you were bad or you were good, therefore. All he's saying is, if you are my disciple, in this world you will have tribulation. You're going to have the steadily building pressure against you. It's a word that can also be another way of saying persecution. What he's saying is, in this world you're going to suffer. It's going to happen. It's a promise of Jesus. But then he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. That word overcome is nakao in Greek, and it means literally to conquer. But it's not just him saying that he's going to conquer it. It's actually in the perfect tense. And so what Jesus is saying in the perfect tense is, I have, will, and always will conquer. So I, I, I have conquered completely uh, that which you are facing. So in this world, you will have trouble, steadily building pressure. But I have overcome, conquered that world. So the question is, the big interpretive question that I think separates us into two different stories is, did Jesus mean it's all done, it's all conquered, and all we need to do is have faith and everything will be good, we will no longer face suffering? Or did Jesus mean, I have ultimately conquered suffering and there will be a day that you will see the ultimate fulfillment of that, but until then, you will continue to face struggle. And in order to answer that question well, I want us to walk all the way through the scriptures. So we're going to start, we're going to do nine scenes. And uh, these nine scenes uh, will hopefully set the stage for a story because if, uh, if Pete Hughes is right, the story that we live in is the story that we live out. It becomes vitally important for us to understand the story that we're in. And so I've, took these nine, I've taken these nine scenes from a guy named Tyler Staten who uh, put together this kind of framework of the way the scriptures handle suffering. And I thought it was really, really helpful. And so we're going to go through it a lot faster than he did. I hope, actually you hope, I'm fine, but if uh, you're gonna hope, I go through it fast. So um, let's start with scene number one, creation. So if you would turn to Genesis chapter one, let's start at the beginning. It's a good place to start all stories at the beginning. In Genesis chapter one, God created all that is and all that is is good. All that is is blissful. This is the way that he says it in Genesis 1, 31. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So there's this statement that God makes over all of creation where there is no suffering, there is no pain, there is no brokenness. All is as God intended it, which is that it was good. Now that's really important for us to get because most of the creation narratives in the ancient world did not start with bliss. They started with struggle. They started with brokenness because we end with brokenness. Everybody could see that. And so th there was a, a beginning in brokenness that kind of progressed through to the world that we live in. But the, the God of the Bible didn't start the story that way. Jesus, God tells the story in terms of there being goodness that began everything. Bliss, perfection, no suffering. Unfortunately, that scene does not last long, as you know. And so scene two takes us from creation to fall. So by Genesis chapter three, you have another story being told. God's story is a story of goodness and bliss, of no suffering, but instead uh, the goodness of God. The serpent steps in 
speaking to first Eve and then Adam and says, really? Like, is that really what God said? Can you really trust that God has your best interest in mind? Do you you really believe that God is leading you in the best pathway? So he says to Eve, did God really say, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why wouldn't he let you do that? Like, it would be good for you to, in fact, you'd be like God if you would do that. And Eve takes the bait. And so does Adam. And they eat the fruit from the tree. And in doing so, They intentionally disobey the God of the universe, bringing sin, with intentionality, bringing sin into the world. So when God shows up, God shows up with a question. Where are you? It's always important to remember when God asks a question, it's not because he's in need of information. There's something else going on, right? And so Jesus, God shows up and he says, where are you? Because he wants Adam and Eve to be exposed to what has just happened. To, to be honest before him. Remember, uh, joy builds authenticity, authenticity builds joy. And so he's coming in and he's saying, be honest, let's face to face. My face is shining upon you. Let's talk about this. And he recognizes sin has entered into the world. And so there's a series of pronouncements that he made. Now it's really important for us to get the pronouncements that we call the curse is not God saying, you were bad, here's the punishment. It's God saying, this is what just happened. Let me describe to you what has just happened. And so he tells first the serpent, here's what just happened. Because you did this, here's what's going to happen with you. And then he tells Eve, because you did this, here's what's going to happen with you. I'd love to focus on all those, but we don't have time. What I want to take you to is verse 17. He's talking to Adam now, but he's not just speaking just to the curse that Adam is dealing with, but the broader curse that goes with it. Let me read for you. Um, To Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and has eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now think about that. Cursed is the ground because of you. What he's saying is the, the, the effect of sin didn't just affect you and, and her. It didn't just affect the serpent. The, uh, the effect of sin has actually affected all that is. All of creation is now affected, broken because of that. And if you know the story, Adam and Eve are going to be expelled from the garden. They're going to have kids. Cain is going to murder his brother Abel. And that's going to begin this devolution away from the goodness of God into brokenness, into murder and revenge. And it's just, a, it's just like one thing after another. And what the early chapters of the Bible are going to tell us is a very simple description of suffering. Suffering, hear me carefully, suffering does not show up because of the explicit will of God but because of the entrance of sin into his good world. So God is not the author of suffering. He is declaring simply, this is what's coming because of what happened. Cursed is the ground because of you. Because of what just happened, everything broke. And you're going to see that continue to unfold. And so the big question that we're constantly wrestling with is, how do suffering and a good God work together? Eugene Peterson on suffering talks about it this way. What we need to know is that suffering is neither an impersonal fate nor a cut and dried moral punishment. We're implicated in a world of sin, sometimes ours, sometimes others, and therefore in a world of suffering. Now, now let let me be really clear because I want to counter some teachings that maybe you've heard at various times. What the Bible is not saying is that your specific suffering is caused by your specific sin. 
there is not your sin is not tied to your suffering. It's not that you're not culpable just like I'm culpable, but it's that um, the suffering that we all experience in the world is a result of the sin that we all experience because we are broken people living in a broken world. Okay, so we'll unpack that more as we go. I don't have time to dig in any further than that this morning, but it's important for you to get. It's not a one-to-one, you sinned, therefore you suffer. It is much more a, uh, we are all part of a broken world that has been marred by sin, therefore suffering happens because of that. And the big question that is constantly put to any good religion, whether Christianity or any other one, is how does a good God coexist with suffering? If God is God, why can't he just fix it? And what we're left with is the metaphorical square peg and round hole. Right? You have the square peg of the goodness of God and the round hole of the suffering of the world, and you're saying, how does this work together? That's going to take us to Genesis chapter 6. So scene th- 3, Genesis 6. We'll start to move faster than this, I promise, but we're going to uh, need to set a stage. So uh, in Genesis chapter 6, we need to ask the question, how does God feel uh, what, what's God's response to what's happening? So uh, we don't have a ton of specifics in Genesis 3, 4, 5, but what we know is it's getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, murder is giving way to revenge, giving way to more murder. I mean, it's, it's bad. It's really, really ugly. And this is, what, uh, this is what it says in verse 5 of Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So that's pretty weighty. God's feeling, God's response to what's going on in the world is a, a, a regret and a, a grieving. So now we're left with the question, if the all-powerful God regrets that he has made creation, why doesn't he just fix it? Or, if the all-loving God is seeing us suffer, why doesn't he draw close to us? But God is neither one nor the other. If God was just all-powerful, he would wipe out everything and begin again, which he's going to do something very close to in just a minute. But he's going to keep Noah and his family as uh, those who would continue the race of humanity, the broken, sinful race of humanity, in order to continue to work through a process. Why does he do that? Because he's not just all-powerful, he's also loving. If he was just loving and not powerful, he would come alongside and he would suffer with us, but he wouldn't be able to do anything about it. But what God does in Noah, and by the way, read a little bit about Noah. He was a train wreck. I mean, he may have been the best option that God had, but he was bad. Like, he was really, really bad. So, I mean, he gets off the ark, and he's like, how can I sin first? Let me just, like, go through the list. It's, it's bad news, man. It's bad. But this is what he had. So he, he, choo- he chooses Noah, and in grace, he keeps Noah alive, and Noah becomes then the seed through which God starts this project of reclamation because he is both power and love mixed together. And in power, he begins this process of redemption, but in love, he says, I'm going to keep humanity and I'm going to continue this line on so that they can be redeemed, not just eradicated. And so he calls a man named Abram 
and he says to Abram, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to all the world. You're going to be the family that I'm going to choose, my chosen instrument, to be a blessing to the world around us. And if you read through the story, we're going to fast forward pretty quickly now, um, you're going to find out that they don't do a very good job of it over and over and over and over and over again. So we're going to jump to the next scene, scene four, which is the father's love. This is Exodus chapter three. By Exodus chapter three, the nation of Israel, the family of Abraham, has been uh, enslaved by Egypt. And in the midst of their slavery, they're crying out before God. And so God shows up to a guy named Moses in Exodus chapter three. And uh, I wanna just read for you uh, verse seven. So God says this, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. So we're just going to stop there. The cry of who was heard? Moses? No. The leaders of Israel? No. Judah, the, the pathway through which God is going to bless the people through his prophecy? Nope. The nameless, faceless, oppressed people of Israel are the cry that God hears. He, he hears their cry and responds. Why? Because God's a father and he has the heart of a father. This is what theologians call the, the, um, the, the preference of God for the poor and the oppressed. That God has a preference, a drawing close to those who are going through suffering. And some of you need to hear that. God meets in a unique and special way those who are in the midst of the journey of suffering. And we see that first in Exodus chapter three. God's drawing close to those people because he has the heart of a father. If you are a parent or you are closely connected to a family um, where you can uh, observe parents interact, one of the things that you'll see is that parents will at various times uh, disproportionately focus their attention on one or the other of their children because they're in the middle of something because they're going through some stuff. So a little over a year ago, um, Ethan was driving down a freeway and hit a patch of ice and rolled his car a bunch of times, and um, he was fine, but there's a lot of emotional trauma that goes with that, a lot of stuff that happens with that, plus the car was a train wreck, like it was really, really bad. And so for a period of time, we were disproportionately focused on them. How evil would it have been if we would have said, well, we have four kids, so you get 25% of the time. That's just the way it goes, man. Like, too bad. <laughs> that's the way it is. Like, three kids are fine. So, I mean, that's a pretty good average. That's still like a solid C, right? Like, we're good. We're fine, right? No, you never do that, right? Like, when we dropped off T at school for the very first time, she's a senior now, which is crazy to me. When we dropped her off for the very first time, she was all, like, by herself and felt so alone, and she's kind of shy, and we were like, like, our heart went to her. Now... We showed up over the weekend to watch her do a water polo tournament, and she's like, she's in her element. Like, it's great. Like, I don't have to, I don't have a lot of disproportionate energy going towards her right now. Like, she's in good shape. But as a father, your heart is drawn towards the children that are in the middle of suffering, and that's what we see of God in Exodus chapter 3. He's like drawing, his heart is being drawn close to his people who are suffering. And in that process, he sends a deliverer. Moses becomes his voice box, comes, and uh, the, the plagues unfold on Egypt. God delivers his people from Egypt, parts the Red Sea. They go out into the promised land. And as they go into the promised land, God says, here's the way to live. This is uh, the, the instructions for the good life. Live this way and pass this way of living onto the world around you, which, of course, they do not do. And so um, that's going to lead us all the way to the book of Isaiah. So I want you to go to scene five, and that's in Isaiah chapter 53. So we're going to move a long way forward now. 
And now instead of the people being enslaved, the people are exiled. And so they've been sent out from their country. Uh, Now it's not Egypt, but it's Babylon. And in the midst of exile, God is speaking to them. But it's fascinating. He does not say, I'm going to send a deliverer like Moses. I'm going to send one who's going to come and do all this miraculous work and pull you out. And we're not, he's not going to part the Red Sea. But instead, I'm going to send you one who is going to suffer alongside of you, to be one of you. And as he suffers with you, to be your savior. So turn to Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. God says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. What God promises is that there will be a savior who will come, but he's not going to come as separate from but connected to. So that's going to lead us very smoothly into scene six, which is Jesus himself. Now we need to take a little bit more time on scene six because this is kind of the hinge of the whole deal, right? Um, So there's a promised savior that's coming. He's going to come to become one of us. And when Jesus shows up, he shows up in a certain way. He lives in a certain way and he dies in a certain way. And those three things are vital for us to see as it relates to suffering. So first, how's he show up? He shows up as a baby born to poor people who are of an oppressed people group under a government that will very quickly move to a a period of time where they're killing every infant, the age of Jesus. And so Jesus moves from being an oppressed person to a refugee as he runs away from his country of origin. And, And in the midst of poverty and oppression, he then moves back in to connect with his people group, who, by the way, are a hyper religious people group who are trying to be holy in every way. And if you're familiar with the story of the birth of Jesus, it was kind of more questionable like right you you have a mom who is pregnant before she's uh, married to Joseph and you have this baby that's coming in a society that is not good with that right so Jesus uh, with a but there's another 10 things I could say about that Um, Jesus does not give himself any advantage when he comes in He, he comes into the earth as disadvantaged as you can be he grows up and for 30 years he just grows and develops and then he lives in a certain way. Now, I could walk you through teachings and miracles and all kinds of stuff. It would take us weeks and weeks and weeks to do that. I just want to look at one uh, instance from Jesus' life. How did he live? Well, the first thing that he did before he called disciples, before he did a miracle, before he did any teachings, was he went into the wilderness and he fasted for 40 days and he encountered the temptation of Satan. So now the serpent from Genesis 3 is back again. And now the temptations are, of, if we have to be honest, a pretty strange variety. Like you've probably already been tempted in some way today, but probably none of these would have been the things, right? So Jesus was tempted in three ways. Turn these stones to bread, jump off the temple, bow down and worship Satan so you can have all of creation worship you. You can be given all of creation. Probably you did not get up this morning and think, Okay, I really want to go outside and turn the stones to bread because I'm kind of hungry, but I'm just going to make some eggs instead. I can resist. I can handle it, right? That's probably not where you went. So what's going on here? Why in the world? These are weird temptations. Like, what's happening? Jesus is being tempted to take a shortcut. 
when you make bread, you have to plant, you have to wait a long time, you have to allow everything to happen for there to be a harvest, and that harvest then to be transitioned into grain that can be then baked together into bread. It's a very, very long process. What Jesus was being tempted to do was a shortcut. Not gather a crowd, not um, teach and lead and uh, create relationship with people, but rather throw yourself off the temple. When the angels come and swoop you up, everybody's going to follow you. Come on, just like draw a crowd immediately, instant. Instead of walking through the path of the cross to be the king of all things, just bow down and worship me. You get the kingdom without the suffering. Shortcuts. Jesus unlike Adam and Eve, was unwilling to take the shortcut. And that is really good news for us because a victorious king who has not suffered does not relate to you and I. Like, we're, we're in the midst of suffering, all of us. Whether you're in it now or whether you've been in it in the past or whether you're on your way to it, it's coming for you if it's not already here. And if the king that we follow short-circuited all of that. We have no sense of meaning and purpose to what we're walking through. The psychologist David Benner writes in his book, Soulful Spirituality, he says it this way. Only suffering and struggle and all the dark experiences that come with them will grow a soul big enough to hold our life. This happens when we ground ourselves in the blood, sweat, and tears of ordinary life. Jesus was grounded in the blood, sweat, and tears of ordinary life. That was the way Jesus lived. And he lived in a way that was tempted, the writer of Hebrews says, in every way that we were and yet was without sin. And so right after Jesus said to his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He was led away to a cross. Where did Jesus die? How did Jesus die? Outside of the city, in shame, in the most painful way possible, but also in the most exclusionary way possible. Jesus is pushed out of society and is crucified, not just in a, a physically torturous way, but in a way the scriptures tell us where he bore our sin, bore the same sin that in Genesis chapter three cursed the ground. So if you go all the way back like, this is a good point for us just to kind of pause and look back. If you go all the way back, there was a good creation, no suffering. Suffering came in not because of the explicit will of God, but because of the brokenness of sin that entered into the world. God feels about that with grief and regret, but because he is a God both of power and of love, he saves humanity and sets about to redeem the brokenness of sin. He does that with a father's heart and as a co-sufferer, one who will come among us. And Jesus perfectly represents that both in his birth and his life and now in his death. Jesus bears the sin that causes our suffering. He takes it. So when Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What he's saying is, I'm going to bear it all. And there will be ultimately a pathway towards redemption because the all-powerful God is also the God who is full of love for you. And so I am bearing sin 
so that suffering would have an end point. And so we're going to pause right here. We're going to come back to the last couple scenes. For your grace for just a few more minutes as we wrap up these scenes, because uh, while Jesus feels like the end point, uh, what you're going to find is that Jesus taught that that was really just the beginning. And so um, we left off in scene six. Jesus um, lives, dies, and then lives again. And the resurrected Jesus is going to make a statement in Luke chapter 24. I want to take you there just really quickly. In Luke 24, Jesus says this. uh, This is in verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Now think about that. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? What Jesus is doing is tying together suffering with glory. And what you're going to find throughout the rest of the New Testament is that theme of the tie between suffering and glory will continue all the way through in a way that we have to get our heads around because if we recognize that we're in a world where we will have tribulation— We need to be able to see what it is that Jesus is doing to redeem that tribulation in the world around us. So that takes us to scene seven real quickly. Uh, Move to Acts chapter five. In Acts chapter five, I'm just going to read a tiny section out of a little story. Uh, The apostles are um, arrested because they're talking about Jesus. The the ruling authority is trying to figure out what in the world to do with him. And they finally make the decision, we're just going to beat him and we're going to tell him not to talk about Jesus anymore. That'll take care of it. And so if you go, um, you think I'm joking. That's exactly what's in here. Um, So if if you move down to... uh, Let me get the right verse for you. 40 and 41 in uh, Acts chapter 5, it says this. When they called the apostles, they beat them and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they, this is the apostles, left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So just imagine, they like call them in, they're like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to beat them, take rods, and we're going to beat them until they're bleeding and blood and awful, bruised all over. Then we're going to send them away, and they walk out, and they're like high-fiving each other. Like, look at that. We got to suffer. Yay, this is great. So now you have this tie together between suffering and glory that has to look so crazy to the world around them, right? What's happening? It's like their suffering is actually showing the flow of the Spirit in this way that they're like, when, when we suffer, it actually shows the world how strong the spirit is that's working through us. So let me try to illustrate. It's a weird concept, but um, there's this place down in Southern New York County on Muddy Creek that we like to go just hang out. There's a bunch of rocks there, a big rock outcropping, but there's a bunch of rocks in the, in the stream. And we love, we love being there because the, the stream is like gurgling and rushing over the rocks. Now, what's crazy is the stream is not, doesn't have a stronger current there than it does everywhere else. It's all just flowing together, right? It's all, it's all one stream. But the rocks show how strong the current is. That's what suffering is supposed to do for us. When we suffer as believers, it actually shows the strength of the power of the Spirit that's working in and through us. And so, like rocks in a stream bed, the the suffering of the apostles is showing the strength of the power of the Spirit. So they're rejoicing in the middle of it. So that takes us then to scene eight, which is the uh, letters of Paul turn, just a couple pages to Romans chapter five. Let me read for you the first uh, couple verses of Romans chapter five. 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That all makes perfect sense. So he's basically saying, you've been justified by faith, you've been redeemed, and so we rejoice in that. That's good, right? Yay, that's what he says. Then he says, verse three, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Okay, so this all of a sudden got really not just confusing, but for many of Paul's original readers, offensive. Like they're being killed for their faith. So he says, you're justified, rejoice. You're suffering, rejoice. And they're saying, what? Oh, come on, what are you, what are you talking about? But, but he's saying what happens is the, the suffering process is developing in us something that can't be developed in any other way. So turn uh, forward just a couple pages to Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, verse 18, Paul's going to continue on about this process of suffering. He says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So what Paul says is, God didn't determine by his express will that you should suffer, nor did you, through your specific sin, cause your suffering. But because sin has come into the world, suffering has happened, and God, through his express will, is redeeming that, that suffering so that you would experience the totality of the goodness of God, the freedom that's offered to you in Christ. So in some way that we can't fully put all of the pieces together on, the suffering that we experience leads into a fuller experience of the freedom of the goodness of God. And this is not just Paul in the book of Romans. So uh, flip forward just a bit to the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter, th- chapter 3, Paul's going to make a profoundly odd statement in the middle of a book that literally, there, there's four chapters, and you could summarize the entire book of Philippians with the word joy. This is a book about joy. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3:10. That I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, I don't have time to fully unpack what he just said, but, but the heart of what I want you to see is that he's saying I'm embracing the sufferings that are coming because it's through the sufferings that I'm fully entering into the, to all that God has for me. Here's what I want you to see. Paul's letters, along with the totality of the New Testament, are going to say that God redeems our suffering. Doesn't cause it, doesn't expressly will it, but redeems it through his grace. We'll unpack these more in the next couple weeks, but there's a couple ways that that happens. One of them is just through basic gratitude. So go back to COVID. At the beginning of COVID, we were all of a sudden thankful for things we never knew to be thankful for, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, like talking to people and having like human conversations with people in their living room. Wow, I never thought to be thankful for that. But man, that's pretty cool, right? Gathering together with groups of people. I, I never thought to be thankful for that. But through suffering, I began to understand gratitude. We also have solidarity. 
coming alongside of people who are also going through suffering. Um, if, if something happens in your life that's tragic, you will immediately find all the people around you who also had that thing happen to them. It's just the way it works. So like when my mom was diagnosed with cancer, I all of a sudden had dozens of people whose moms had cancer that I didn't know until my mom was going through the journey. When my dad had a heart attack, all of a sudden I found all these people whose dad died unexpectedly through a heart attack. And there's all these people who come out. As we go through things, we're drawn together with others who have also gone through that thing. It's part of the way that God builds up our community. So he redeems our suffering through gratitude, through solidarity. And finally, for today at least, he redeems it through maturity through the way that he is forming and shaping us. In a parallel passage to Romans chapter five, the apostle James writes in James chapter one, consider it pure joy when you face suffering of all kinds because joy is gonna create in you perseverance and character and hope. There's gonna be this flow that's gonna happen, this building up that's gonna happen. Here's the thing. All of us, the scriptures tell us, will face suffering. We have a decision as to how we're gonna handle that suffering God desires to redeem it. Ronald Rollheiser talks about this choice. Uh, stick with this quote. It's a little bit longer, but I think it's helpful. All of us will get hurt, Rollheiser says. That's a given. How we handle that hurt, whether we'll, with either bitterness or forgiveness, will color the rest of our lives and determine what kind of person we are going to be. Suffering and humiliation find us all and in full measure but how we respond to them will determine both the level of our maturity and what kind of person we are. Suffering and humiliation will either soften our hearts or harden our souls. There is no depth of soul without suffering. There is no depth of soul without suffering. It's through the difficult things in life that God creates depth in our soul. God desires to redeem suffering. But hear me, this is scene eight, and we're going to scene nine because it's not enough. It's, it's really good, and it's really important. But if we're totally honest, with real suffering, the weight of real suffering, even the fact that God redeems it is not enough. So pastor, friend of mine, whose daughter was diagnosed with a disease, very young, Church rallied around her and prayed for her, but through a series of time, she passed away. God did not choose to heal her. And through that season, there were all kinds of different things that were happening, lots of prayers that were happening throughout the community. And during her celebration of life service, there was a sweet old lady at the church that came up to my friend and said, Pastor, God has already started to use the death of your daughter in some amazing ways. I know it's really, really hard, but God is redeemed. There's already people who have come to faith because of her, and I know it's going to happen with more people because of her death. And this pastor looked her right in the face and said, I wish they would all go to hell. Because I don't care about them more than I care about her. And that's the reality for all of us when we go through suffering. It's not enough. The fact that God redeems it, it's good. It's helpful. It's, it gives us light. But it's not enough. There has to be something more. Because it's hardwired into us to long for something more. And so that takes us to scene nine. I'm going to ask you to turn all the way to the end of your Bible, to Revelation 21. I'm just going to read for you a couple verses at the end of Revelation 21. Starting in verse 3. 
I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. The good news is not that God redeems suffering. It's that in a way that I I cannot fully explain to you, in a way that I can't piece together with a nice picture, with a little bow on the top, but I know to be true, God undoes suffering. He is making all things new. He's taking broken things and he's making them whole. He's taking the bad and evil things of the world and he's undoing them. He's wiping away every tear from our eye. The hope that we have is not just that God will redeem our suffering so good things will come out of the bad, but that God is in some way going to undo the bad. That we will, in eternity with him, be able to look fully in his face and say, I I didn't get it then, but I see it. Not I see it because it became better, but I see it because you fixed it. I don't know how you did, but you fixed it. The hope that we have in suffering is that the God of the universe is going to step in and make all that is wrong right. So let's go back to John chapter 16. When Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What's he saying? He must be saying, you will continue to face suffering. You will continue to hit things that are heartbreaking to you that are anxiety-inducing, that are crushing to you. You will, you will hit those things. But in the moment, my face is shining on you. Hallelujah. And you can have joy. And in the end, I am making all things new. Hallelujah. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Over the course of the next several weeks, we're going to unpack all of the probably dozens of questions that are bouncing around in your head right now because I can only skim the surface. But it's so important for us to set a foundation for you to hear that the God of the universe, his face is turned towards you. Suffering comes from sin. Sin is what God is in the process of fully eradicating. He has conquered. And there will be a day where we will see that fully undone in the beauty of the new heaven and the new earth. So until then, we're gonna continue to walk through this journey. And so I want to pray over us as we end today. Thank you for your your grace. I know this was a bit long, but it it was one of those stories that you can't like start it and then like, okay, after scene five, we'll stop and we'll come back next week. It just doesn't work that way. So um, so we're just going to take some time to listen for just a moment. And then the team's going to lead us in a response. And as God leads you to respond, I'll invite you to do that, whether through prayer at an altar or with one another, just in response to the Lord. So just take a minute. It's been a lot of stuff. Just take a deep breath. Just allow the Spirit of God to speak to you. Jesus, would you, by the grace of your Spirit, speak into our hearts that we would hear from you.